Well, tonight we get uh, an opportunity to talk about a really important passage to me. Uh, for those of you who, who have been with us near the beginning, or when we first started back in February, um, when I was kind of giving my overview, I also talked about my introduction to the church. And there were two passages in, in terms of the identity of this church and, and why I came up with this, this name for the church, Wellspring. And tonight is one of those passages, one of the two passages we get to, to hear about tonight. And it is uh, one of my favorite passages. And I'm so grateful to get the chance to speak about it on Palm Sunday. This wonderful day about Jesus the King. Jesus the King. So anyway, I'm going to go ahead and read it tonight, and um, I'm going to read just from verses, this John chapter 4, from verses 1 to 26. I'm splitting the story in half, uh, basically because I also want to be able to preach part of it for Easter. And so the first half on Palm Sunday will be verses 1 to 26, and then the second half, 27 to 42, uh, next week on Easter. So tonight, I called this sermon, Living Water. For the outcast. For the outcast. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you before we go through it. This is John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus sits down with the woman at the well, and she finds that this well she came to, this wellspring she sat at, was not what she needed to survive, but that Jesus himself is the true wellspring the true source of life and the spirit and all good things. Here, her, the outcast, can find hope, life, healing. And so that passage really shaped what I believe about the identity of this church and what I want it to be. Wellspring, where people come to meet Broken, hurting, disenfranchised, outcast come to find healing and hope because they encounter Jesus, the true wellspring. This was formative in the name and identity of what I want this church to be. Well, let's go through and unpack what, what it has to say. John 4, 4, 1 starts like this. Therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. Jesus sees that he's under hot water, right? He's, things are not going to go well for him if he stays in Judea. The Pharisees have heard that he's even more famous than John. That more people are coming to Jesus than even to John. And if we remember, the Pharisees did not like John already. <laughs> So when a man becomes more famous than John with a similar ministry, right? Jesus connects himself to John's ministry by being baptized by him. Jesus realizes that they're probably going to come to come for him next, right? So Jesus decides to leave. And he leaves Judea to go to Galilee. And of course, to go to Galilee, he has to cross through Samaria. Okay? Um, but to understand that, we really need to think about what Samaria is and what, uh, who the Samaritans were. Okay? Um, the background for this, if you have notes, I know you guys online don't, but for those of you here, if you have notes, the background passage for this to explain is 2 Kings 17. Okay? 2 Kings 17. And it explains what happened um, and who the Samaritans were. Uh, in 2 Kings, we're in the kingdom, kind of the empire of the Assyrians. 
And when the Assyrians came through the land, they, they conquered all the peoples, like all the great empires of, of the, those days, right? Just like Assyria and Greece and uh, Persia did and Rome did later. But Assyria was kind of the first to come through and do that. And Assyria, uh, in a what we would call, I guess, a, a brilliantly human move, it's obviously a very evil thing, but in terms of tactical, uh, it was a very tactical thing. When they conquered a land, they would displace the people. What they would do is, as they conquered peoples, they would swap where they lived. So when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, right? The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. And when they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they took all the Israelites out of Israel and put them in other parts of their empire and moved foreign peoples into the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because the less you knew the land, the less you had power to revolt. You know, it's, it's kind of like we think about the Middle East now, right? Insurgents and guerrillas can last a long time because they know the land, right? They know the caves and the holes and where they can be and hide and where best to attack. There's a tactical advantage to knowing the land. And the Assyrians wiped that out by moving people. By displacing them. So when all these foreigners came into the land of Israel, uh, Second Kings tells us that they didn't worship the Lord of the land, which would be Yahweh, and it says the Lord sent lions among them to eat them, to maul them and eat them mm. in Second Kings 17. And so the people said, and they, they, they understood it correctly, they said, uh, we don't know the custom of the God of this land. We need to learn it. So that will stop being attacked. And so they, uh, they petitioned the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent an exiled priest back to these foreigners to teach them the ways of Yahweh. And so what you end up with is a group of people who believe in the God Yahweh and yet racially are not Jewish or racially mixed, right? They intermarry and mixed with the people who were there. And so you have um, really the best, I mean, it's really nothing other than um, racism, really, in some sense, the way the Jews viewed the Samaritans, right? They were either half-breeds, right? They were part Jew and part not Jew. They were mixed. Or they were just literally foreigners. But they were God-fearers. They knew the God of Israel. They at least th thought they knew him. In fact, the Samaritan Pentateuch, they have their own writings um, that is very close to what we have in the Hebrew Old Testament, but it's their own version that they considered their holy text called the Samaritan Pentateuch, with the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The books of Moses. Um, and what the Samaritans believed is they only took the teachings of Moses. That was their sacred document. They did not believe in any of the prophets of the Hebrew Old Testament. Once you got past the Torah, those first five books, or the Pentateuch, it's called in Greek, um, once you got past that, they didn't believe in any of the other scriptures. They just believed in those first five books. And in part, the reason is that in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, it says, Moses himself says, There will one day arise a prophet like me who will come and teach you all things, who will come and, and instruct you, right? And you must listen to him, it says in Deuteronomy 18. And so, because of that, the Samaritans were awaiting that prophet from Deuteronomy 18. And they did not believe in any of the other prophets because they were still waiting for that prophet, right? So all the other prophets of Israel were false. 
Only this one who was to come was the one they were waiting for. So they believed in Moses, and they were awaiting this prophet, like Moses. So that's some background on the Samaritans, who they are. They're God-fearers who were racially mixed, but they tended to be unorthodox in belief, right? They did not have the same beliefs as the Jews, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the passage. But that's who they were. And so they are in the northern kingdom, and they've attached themselves to the God of Israel, and um, they live in the land of Israel. So they really feel they have a claim to, uh, to God, and, and they really believed, at least they taught their ancestry was from Jacob, the line of Jacob. <clears throat> and so that's why it says uh, there's this focus on Jacob, right? This focus, Jacob's well was there, and they went to the well, right? Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is most likely from um, the sunrise, is usually how they accounted time, so about 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would probably be about noon. It's the heat of the day. And so Jesus, this is an interesting little note, Jesus is wearied, right? The Word, the Word of God, the eternal Word, mm is wearied. Why? Because he is made flesh, right? Remember John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's truly human. And so Jesus is wearied and overheated and he's thirsty and hungry and he sits by this well. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is all alone with this woman at a well. If you know your Old Testament, there's a lot of backgrounds. I'm going to overload you with scripture backgrounds tonight. Um, there's three passages we can kind of go to that kind of uh, prime the pump for what we should be thinking about in the terms of this story. Jesus is meeting a woman at a well. What do we think of? Well, we come up with three stories. One is Genesis 24. Remember, Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. And when he goes to find a wife for his son Isaac, he sees a well, and he prays to the Lord. Lord, whatever woman you have for my master's son, when I ask her for a, a drink, you know, will she give me a drink and then say, will... I will water your camels also, right? And he's, he's looking for the sign to find a wife for his master's son. That's one story that's background, right? The, ser the steward or the servant meeting a woman at the well. That's one. The second is Genesis 29, a very similar story, this time with Jacob, who's obviously a major player in this story. Jacob meets his future wife, Rachel, at a well. He's at a well, and she's there, and she brings her flock out. And Jacob waters her flock, right? He's the one who gives water to Rachel's flocks. That's Genesis 29. And lastly, Exodus 2, Moses. Remember, Moses kills uh, a, an Egyptian for attacking one of the people of Israel, and he flees in exile out of Egypt, right? He flees in exile out of Egypt. And what does it say he does in the land of Midian? He sat down on a well. 
And who comes up to him? Well, it says seven daughters of his father-in-law, his future father-in-law, Ruel. And one of them is Zipporah, who becomes Moses' wife. That's Exodus 2. So you have all these stories in the background of your head from your Old Testament that what happens when a man meets a woman at a well? It's a romance story. It's a romance story. It's a biblical romance. And all the expectations are set there that are shocking as a reader to think, okay, is Jesus romancing this woman? Or is this woman interested in Jesus? And you'll see as you read it that that some of that is ambiguous, and, and Jesus in, inevitably makes it clear at, at some point during this conversation. But there's a lot of ambiguity about um, whether this is a romantic or sexual thing, conversation taking place between them at the well, right? Because of the background in the Old Testament. And so she says, this is strange. Why is this man, a Jew, asking me for a drink? Right? Because Samaritans have no dealings with Jews. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because they were half-breeds, like I told you earlier, right? They were either mixed race or they were uh, unpure. They were impure, right? They were unclean because they were not ethnically Jewish. And it has actually, unfortunately, uh, the, the reality is there's kind of three boundaries that are crossed, right? The first is that Samaritan piece where racially she's impure. Right? And so for a Jew to speak to a Samaritan is highly odd. The second is that she's a woman. For a man to approach a woman and speak to her, not necessarily in the presence of a, a group or something like that, but alone. The two of them are alone at a well. And he approaches her as a man, uh, not just a man, but a stranger. Right? It, it would be one thing if he was a relative or, or you know, closely connected to her. But the idea that she was that she was engaging with a stranger, there was this connotation that something was amiss. And lastly, she's obviously an outcast. Well, how do we know that? Well, if we know the story, we know what we hear about her past later. But even now, we're already suspect in the story because she comes at noon. She comes at noon. Remember, Jesus is wearied from the heat of the day because it's noon and he sits down by a well thirsty and hot why would this woman come and draw water in the heat of the day and why is she alone you know usually the women of the village would come together safety in numbers they would come when it wasn't hot either early in the morning for their first draw or later in the afternoon when the heat of the day was not so intense so why does she show up alone and in the heat of the day some reason she has been rejected, rejected by the other women of the village. We don't know necessarily why, even after reading the story, we don't know necessarily why, but it could be multiple things. It could be that she's immoral. Maybe that's the reason she has five husbands. Maybe all five men have found a grounds for divorce. Maybe she's sexually impure. Maybe she's, you know, given herself to other men, committed adultery. That's possible. We don't know that, but it's possible. Or maybe she's been socially used. You know, this, this woman who's been married five times. Women did not have a lot of rights to anything. In fact, marriage was their protection because they had someone whose care they had come under. And five different men have rejected her from that, have cast her out from their protection, from the relationship. Maybe she's 
been socially marginalized. And we find out even later that, that the man she lives with currently is not her husband, right? So even more so. Now, this last man she's with now, probably cohabitating, right? They're, they're probably sleeping together, probably having sex. But this man is not even willing to, uh, to protect her with the true covenant of marriage. And, and there is no culture of that day and age in which that wouldn't have been frowned upon in some sense, that, that there was something maybe wrong with this woman after five marriages. Maybe she just wasn't really marriage material, right? That this guy was not willing to, to marry her. She was, she was damaged goods. That's her story. Jesus crosses all three boundaries when he approaches her. A Jew talking to a Samaritan. A man talking to a woman. And a man who is socially, really, maybe not in his own culture, but being part of the Jewish faith is socially uh, elite in some sense. And a poor outcast who's been beaten and abused by every person she's come into contact with, or at least every man she's come into contact with, it seems. And yet Jesus asks her for a drink, unashamed, unashamed to take water from her. And it seems that she, is, she doesn't totally understand him. Why is he doing this? Is there some kind of uh, relational thing that he's trying to receive from me? Maybe he would be a possible husband. All of that could be floating around this interaction. But Jesus says to her, well, no, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me for a drink. And I could have given you living water. And he says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Living water is a, a, a euphemism for flowing water normally. Okay? So if living water comes from a river, or it's like, for example, a well that would be fed by an underground stream, that would be living water because it flows right? versus stagnant water. That's one usage, but it's also, we know, kind of a play on words like John loves to do. It's living water, so she's thinking, oh, where's this fresh flowing water that I can receive? Is he going to do, you know, how is he going to get it? That's in a purely physical sense. And Jesus, of course, we know is talking about the Spirit. Because we've seen this water motif throughout the Gospel. We saw it in the wedding at Cana. We saw it in John 3. Right? You must be born from above. What's that mean? Born of the Spirit and water. And of course, we're going to see it in John 7, where Jesus uh, is talking about living water and giving it. And John, as the author, makes a note, and he makes it very explicit. He says, when Jesus said this, meaning living water, he was talking about the Spirit, who had not yet been given because he had not yet been crucified. So we know this water imagery is about the Spirit, this eternal life that Jesus offers through the Spirit. But she misunderstands, of course, and, and she thinks he's talking about physical water. And so she says, Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty. And I won't have to come all the way here to draw. You can hear the desperation in her voice. 
I won't have to come here and face the shame of having to come alone or the misery of being in the heat of this day at this well. I can just hole up in my home and, and no one has to know me or see me or know of my pain. It's possible she thinks that maybe there's a relationship possibility here with Jesus. But Jesus, unlike every man that's been in her life thus far, is an honorable man to her. Jesus doesn't take sexual advantage of her. He's not flirting. He's got a higher purpose. And to make it more clear to her, he says, go, call your husband. And bring him here. Jesus, the honorable man. But even in his honorableness, right? Even in his, his greatness, he's still going to call out her pain point. But he does it gently. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Imagine her shame. She knows. She knows everything that's happened in her life. Imagine her pain and her shame. So Jesus tells her about herself. You've correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive that you are a prophet. So she understands a part of Jesus' identity. She doesn't get the wholeness of it yet, but she understands there's something unique about this man. Something special about him. I perceive that you are a prophet. So she asks him a religious question. Our fathers, meaning the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans' ancestors worshipped in this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, we read later. And you people, the Jews, say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Each one of their religions, even though they're related and close, had their own holy site. Right? For the Jews, it was the temple in Jerusalem. That was the holiest site of all Judaism. The place where God's presence dwelt. And for the Samaritans, it was Mount Gerizim, where they had their temple. And in their temple, they also worshipped Yahweh. And they believed Mount Gerizim was the spot where God's presence dwelt on earth. And they believed that because that's the spot where, in Deuteronomy, the covenant community, the Israelites, call out the blessings of the covenant. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel are two twin mountains. And on one side, it says in, uh, I think it's in Numbers, but it might be in Deuteronomy. Um, one side, uh, one half of the community gets up and calls out the blessings of the covenant on Mount Gerizim. And one half of the community gets up on Mount Ebel and calls out the curses of the covenant. And they, they resound to each other. It's a beautiful spot. My dad and I went there in Israel. Um, 
just two twin mountains with a valley in between them, and they would call. They called out to each other. Obviously, the acoustics of that would be very powerful. And so they believed Mount Gerizim was the holiest site. That was the Samaritans' holy site. And so the woman asked Jesus for an answer. Okay, what's the answer to this religious dispute? And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me. Believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. For salvation, we worship, excuse me, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Here's something I think we have to acknowledge. And it's important because all of us here right now in this room and, and online are Gentiles. Jesus acknowledges the priority of revelation to the Jews. He does. They have a special place as the people of God. He says, we worship what we know. Why? Because salvation comes from the Jews. And how do we know salvation comes from the Jews? Well, Jesus is Jewish. He's the Jewish Messiah. Romans 9 to 11 makes the case that we have been grafted in. So we are legitimate heirs, but we are not natural heirs. It says the promises belonged to the people of Israel. Now, we have become partakers of that promise, but it was not ours by right. God grafted us in. Jesus acknowledges the priority of the Jews, and yet at the same time, he says this, but guess what? An hour is coming, and now is, when it won't matter where you worship, but in what manner you worship. Because Jesus is there, the hour has come. The hour has come that the Father is seeking worshipers to worship Him, not at Jerusalem, not at Gerizim, but in the Spirit and truth. In the Spirit and truth. The background of this image, if we think about the living water, and if we remember what was said in John 2... Remember in John 2, Jesus is in the, the temple in Jerusalem. And remember, he flips the tables, and he, and he makes a whip of cords, it says, and drives out the animals, right? That's John 2. And what does Jesus say? He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Remember, we talked about that image of Jesus as the new temple. Jesus says, I am the new temple. In the background, if we think about this living water and temple imagery that Jesus is calling on right now, a new temple, a place where they can worship, and it's not Jerusalem, it's not Gerizim, it's, it's this other place, it's, it's wherever you're at, it's this idea of a, a new temple from which the spirit, like living water, flows. The background for that is Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel 47, remember, Ezekiel seeing this idea of a new temple. A new temple. And he, he spends 
several chapters just talking about the dimensions of it. In Ezekiel 47, it says, He stood in front of the temple, Ezekiel, in a vision. And it said, Water flowed out from the temple to the east and to the north, to the south and to the west, and rivers flowed from the temple. Who is that temple from which the water of life, the Spirit himself, flows? Mm -hmm. That new temple is, of course, Jesus. And see, that's what Jesus is saying. It's not going to be where you're at. It's going to be whether you worship in the Spirit and truth. That water, that living water that flows from me, the new temple. If you worship with that Spirit, changed by that Spirit, and the truth of the Spirit's testimony about who I am, about who Jesus is to Christ. That's the, the type of worshipers the Father is seeking, it says. He's, worship, he's seeking true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And here is the mind-blowing revelation. This outcast Samaritan woman might be a true worshiper. And that should rock everyone's categories. In fact, the way this reads, maybe the Father was seeking her. The Father was seeking a true worshiper. And this Samaritan woman, despite her ethnicity, despite her gender, despite her moral past, could be a true worshiper, according to Jesus. I'll read one more. It's actually, I think, I know I said a couple weeks ago that Ezekiel 36 and 37 were my favorite passages in Scripture. But I also think this might be my favorite passages in Scripture. Okay? I'm going to read one more. Okay? Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 is the ultimate picture of what we're heading for. The ultimate picture of life and beauty and hope is the final images of the scriptures, Revelation 21 and 22. And John, who wrote both the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, listen to what he says about temple and river, right? In, John, uh, in uh, Revelation 21 and 22. I'll just read sections of it. It says this. He's looking at the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem coming down from the clouds, and he says this, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Father and the Son are its temple. Jesus is already saying that in John 4, I am the temple from which the water of life flows, the Spirit who gives life. And then listen also in Revelation 22. Right? It's just said, I saw no temple. The Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. And in Revelation 22, calling back to what we just read or talked about in Ezekiel 47. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. The Father and the Son, the, the Almighty and the Lamb, are the temple, and out of the temple flows a river of life. 
That's the picture of the triune God in heaven. Actually, it's a picture of the triune God in the new earth, dwelling amongst his people. All three are there, the, the Almighty, who is the Father, the Lamb, who is the Son, and the river of life, who is the Spirit. All the fullness of the Trinity dwelling amongst humanity. That is what we've been headed for since Genesis 3. Recapturing Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, even greater than Genesis 1 and 2. Since Genesis 3, the fall, we have been waiting for Revelation 21 and 22. The fullness of deity dwelling among his people. The, the story of scripture, the entire story, the entire book tells one thing. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. That's Revelation 21 and 22. He's our God, we are his people, and he has come down out of heaven to dwell amongst us on earth. He is its temple, and the river of life flows from him. The spirit flows from the Father and the Son, and it says the tree of life is there beside the river, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The nations will be healed, and there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That is a beautiful picture. And that's the image Jesus calls upon right, right here in John 4. That I am the new temple. And the water of life, that living water you seek, flows from me. It flows from me. Obviously, I'm sure the Samaritan woman is probably impressed with this man's knowledge. She's probably amazed. But she says to him, you know what? I know that Messiah is coming. Maybe she starts to think, right? Maybe, maybe she starts to even hope that this man is Messiah. Who knows? But it clearly makes her think of the concept when she hears this man speak. Because she says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will declare all things to us, and then we'll know. We'll know the answers. And this is the climax of the story and the climax of revelation. Jesus gives the ultimate revelation to this outcast Samaritan woman. I who speak to you, I am he. Think about where this passage sits in the Gospel of John. We had just read the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, probably ashamed that someone might see him with Jesus. And Jesus does not reveal himself to him. Remember that? He says, I am from above. He says all these things. He never explicitly says... I am the Christ. And Nicodemus shows up in the dead of night, ashamed to meet with Jesus, lest anyone see. In the parallel of that story, the very next thing we read 
is that Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman in the heat of the day, unashamed to be seen with her. That's the contrast. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and is ashamed in the dead of night. Jesus, in literally the heat, the high point of the day, openly associates with this woman, unashamed in seeking her out. Jesus gives her the climactic revelation of all human history that he is the Christ. He is the Christ. And the beauty of the rest of that story we're going to read on Easter. The beauty of the rest of that story of what happens in her life in response to that revelation and what happens to her city and how it's transformed because of her testimony will be our Easter service. But tonight, you know, it's, it's Palm Sunday. And I, I think about Jesus the King, right? You think about Jesus the King on Palm Sunday. And obviously, usually where you go is, of course, his triumphal entry, right? His triumphal entry, he enters into the city and everyone praises him and puts down palm branches and cries out, Hosanna. But I thought of this story, getting ready to preach on Palm Sunday. This was the story I was going to be preaching and I thought of Jesus the King in context of this story that I'd be preaching on Palm Sunday. I don't know if any of you have watched The Crown. Monique and I have watched all of it. And um, the very last scene of the third season is Queen Elizabeth's Jubilee, her 25th year. And of course, all the pomp and circumstance are there, right? She's in her royal carriage. The entire nation is coming out to see her and celebrate her because she has been its royal for 25 years. And I remember Monique and I sat there and were watching it. And I wept through the whole scene. I thought about Queen Elizabeth as a royal coming out with all the glory and power and majesty that's afforded human royalty and the whole nation praising her and adoring her and clapping for her. And I thought about the type of king Jesus was and I wept through the whole scene because I realized what kind of king Jesus is. No pomp, no circumstance the type of king that would sit down by a well, exhausted and wearied. Not to mingle with the elite, or the high, or the mighty, but to sit by a worthless, a nobody, a nothing, and offer her the greatest revelation that humanity has ever received. What kind of king is he that sits among the worthless and the outcast with zero pretense, zero 
jealousy, zero desire that he needs to be more. And that everyone should come and just lift him up and, and he should be enthroned. And no, he is enthroned. But John tells us he's enthroned on a cross. And that king would sit by that well, miserable and exhausted, to offer an outcast Samaritan woman the greatest thing that humanity has ever had. That's the kind of king we serve. And I think about Jesus and his enthronement. Enthroned, according to John, on his cross. His exaltation, his lifting up, was actually on the cross. His death was his enthronement. And I think about the fact that Jesus, on that cross, did it so that Samaritan woman abused and mistreated by every man she'd ever known might worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus got on that cross so that every Samaritan and every Gentile and every outcast and every criminal and every sinner might worship in spirit and truth. We had no chance because salvation was from the Jews. And Jesus enthroned himself on a cross so that he would open that path so that we wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. We wouldn't have to go to Gerizim and worship. We could worship with his spirit that he poured out on us. That's our king. And that passage is formative for me for the identity of what I want this church to be and a big part of why I named it Wellspring because that's the type of person I always want to find a home at this church. The outcast Samaritan woman who has nothing. And why do I think that's so important? Because I watched my king do it. I watched my king do it. And he does it over and over and over. And this is just one story among many in which he does that very thing. But it's a particularly poignant and powerful one. You see her heartbreak so clearly. Her shame is so evident. And yet that's the type of person Jesus sought. And I want us to be a community that seeks that type of person. We, search, we seek worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what I have to say for this week. That we would be that kind of community. That we would let that story sink deep into the soul of this community. And seek the outcast. Seek the lonely. Seek the miserable. Because that's who our kings are. Let me bless you. Lord, I pray for each person here on online or in this room. Lord, I just pray 
they would follow the example of their king and love the outcast, love the miserable, recognize that we all were once in that state, separated from any hope of salvation, pagans and Gentiles, with no hope in the world. And yet, Jesus, you opened a way. You opened a way. Would each person, would each person reflect on that reality this next week as we look forward to celebrating the high holy day of Christianity, your great resurrection, and also the high tragedy of our faith when the Lord of glory was crucified. I pray each person would reflect on what a king you were this week. What a king you were. And I pray we would all seek the outcast. Would you make that story definitive for this community and definitive for each person's soul? We praise you. Bless each person here. Give them hope and peace and security in this uncertain, doubting, fearful, awful time. And would you open appointments in these days to seek out the deeply lost and the deeply hurting. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. And by the power of your spirit. Amen. 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 Love you all.